Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Open up uh, your copy of the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 11. I promise we are going to get back to Ezekiel. I want to finish it, but um, just several things going on that just made it a a busy day. Uh, And so I thought I'd look at something else tonight. So we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Y'all doing well? All right, good. Uh, I may have mentioned this the other day, but part of what's going on is I spent a lot of the day getting a new computer in so that um, we can, for what it's worth, for those of you who care, we can now broadcast in high definition. Uh, And at the same time that we're broadcasting on our live stream page, we're also broadcasting on a a YouTube page. So just trying to expand the reach and make that as good a quality as we possibly can. We have a a number of unique visitors every week that um, experience our church first that way, and so we're trying to make it as good as we possibly can. So tonight, 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I wanted to start tonight with a quote from a book by John Piper called Desiring God, and this is what Piper says. I've got it up here on the screen for you. Piper says, Can you imagine what it would be like if the God who ruled the world were not happy? What if God were given to grumbling and pouting and depression like some jack-in-the-beanstalk giant in the sky? What if God were frustrated and despondent and gloomy and dismal and discontented and dejected? Could we join David and say, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water? We wouldn't say that, would we? Nobody wants to be around a grouch. I don't think so, Piper continues. We would all relate to God like little children who have a frustrated, gloomy, dismal, discontented father. They can't enjoy him. They can only try not to bother him or maybe try to work for him to earn some little favor. That's what Piper says. Uh, I wanted to look at tonight at this section of Scripture because in this section of Scripture, we're told uh, that God is this. The blessed God. And that word in the Greek is makarios, which some people translate as happy, blissful, full of life, living the good life, 
uh, being what he should. We'll, we'll talk about what that word means in a minute. But I just wanted to look at this passage tonight for a few minutes and look at the fact that God is blessed. That is, God is, is blissful. God, God's happy. And, and what that uh, should mean to us. But it's interesting that this idea that God is happy, the gospel of the blessed God, it's interesting what this follows, because Paul is talking about the law. Now, when you think about the law of God, do you think happy? If you're really sanctified, you might, right? Uh, but generally, we, we don't. Uh, and Paul is talking about the law to Timothy, because Timothy was dealing with um, problems kind of on two sides uh, in his church. The first were some legalistic kind of theological know-it-alls who enjoyed getting into theological debates. And on the other hand, you had sinners who were in some really nasty trouble. And what's interesting is he kind of addresses both with this idea that God is blessed. To these people who want to get involved in all kind of controversies about the law, Paul says this, now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does that mean? Well, understand this, Paul says. The law, God's law, is not laid down for the just. Because if you're just, do, do you need a law? No, you, you instinctually do the law if you're just. So it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient and ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul says the law is given for the lawless. And it isn't necessarily given to the lawless so that they might know and do what's right. They're lawless. Are they going to do what's right? And law doesn't make you want to obey the law. Has a 35-mile-an-hour sign ever helped you go 35 miles an hour? It only tells you you break the law if you go faster than 35 miles an hour. The law has no power to change. Paul says the law really only has power to condemn. And so it's given that it might reveal our sin. When you read the law of God, something that he says is pleasing to him and good, if you go, ouch, then the law's done its job, right? Uh, and so the law is good, but these folks were living as if they, could, if they understood enough about it that, that they were somehow more holy by understanding the law. And Paul's like, that's not what the law's given for. The law's given so that sinners can know that they're sinning. And what's interesting here is he says that sins, I love this for theology nerds, this is a wonderful thing, that sin isn't just bad for us, sin doesn't just displease God, sin is what? Contrary to sound doctrine, I like that. And what is the doctrine that everybody needs to know? Both these people who are kind of looking at the law, trying to get their theological one one-upsmanship with other people or people who are contrary to sound doctrine and that they're sinning? What's something that Paul says that they need to know in order to kind of give up both pursuits? Paul says they need to know that God is happy. God's happy. 
Paul wants you to know tonight that God is happy, and he believes that's going to do good things for you if you do indeed believe that God is blessed. Y'all with me? Now, when it says God is blessed, listen to what a commentator, Donald Guthrie, says. Blessed, it describes God not as the object of blessing, but as experiencing within himself the perfection of bliss. In other words, God lives in constant happiness, bliss. Such a thought accords well with the splendor which he radiates through the gospel. The sovereign God is happy, one writer goes on to say. He is happy in a far deeper and more lasting way than any of us can know. He is not contentedly contemplative like Buddha or occasionally optimistic like us, but he is jubilantly joyful, deeply delighted, and seriously satisfied. Do you believe that? When you think of God, does the idea of him being happy come to your mind? Or does the idea of him being just another surly person you kind of have to keep happy in your life? Because as we're going to see at the end, if you're living that way, you're not living in the good of the gospel. The good of the gospel comes to those who believe that God is happy. Now, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 1 says God is full of wrath at our sin. Those things are true, but wrath and anger are a response to sin. They're not the kind of thing that just kind of generates out of God's heart. What generates out of God's heart is joy. And in a, in a sense, if you can receive it, God is even happy at the things he's mad at because the things that he is mad at are ultimately going to work for his purpose. Does this make sense? And so there's a sense in which even the things that make God mad are part of a plan that ultimately make him happy. Now, we're just not making this stuff up. This is in the Bible all over the place. Psalm 104.31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. May God be rejoicing in his works. Isaiah 62.4, talking about the future of the people of Israel, indeed the future of the world. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Or Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the what? Enter into the joy of your master. So Jesus believes, and our lives really should in some way, in a significant way, be guided by the fact that we believe God's happy. He's happy. He's blissful. Why is our God so happy? That's a good question. You ever been asked that? Why are you so happy? People generally don't ask me that. They generally ask me the opposite. What's wrong with you? But uh, maybe if you saw God, you might go, why? why are you so happy? Well, let's look through some reasons tonight why our God is the blessed, happy, blissful God. Our God is happy because of his eternal fellowship. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, that the whole point of creation and salvation is that the happy land of the Trinity, before anything was made, 
was such a good party that God made people to invite. The Lord wanted to open up what he enjoyed forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wanted to create people to bring them into a party. I think that's what, at least part of what Jesus means when he says, enter into the joy of your master. Uh, and so our God is happy because of his eternal fellowship. What's amazing is when you hear the Father talking about the Son or the Son talking about the Father or them talking about the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit inspiring things, it just really is happy love language. Matthew 17, 2 and 5, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I, I, I really think, you know, a good way to read this is, This is my beloved son. He makes me what? He makes me happy. This is my son. He makes me happy. Jesus says in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us, the church, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, that is the Son of his love. John 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is quoted uh, in Matthew 12. But it says here again, the one in whom my soul delights. So the father loves the son. The son loves the father. Let's not leave out the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So when you have the Holy Spirit within you, what else do you have in you? Joy. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you a deeply theological point that I don't want to go right over your heads? Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise one time about the Trinity. And here's what he said about the Trinity. He said, forever, God has had this perfect idea of himself. And this perfect idea is so true and real as to have forever taken on personhood in the person of the Son. And the Father loves the Son. And that love between the Father and Son, that joy that they have with one another, is such a full joy that it has forever taken on personhood in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy, I know it's a mind-blowing thought. And Edwards traces the scripture to just kind of show how this is the case. And so that the Holy Spirit, he exists as a person who is the love and joy that the Father and the Son have for one another. And this is why when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're full of joy and you come to really love the Father and the Son. Because forever, that's what he is. And so inside this land of the Trinity, that's what you have. So if, if, you, if you see the Father, you love him. If you see the Son, you love him. And you love him because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son that is taken on 
personhood. It's, a, it's an amazing idea. I, I think it's true. Our God is happy because of the eternal relationship that he's in. And, and, and God as Trinity lives in um, unimpeachable joy. Nothing can affect what those three have going on together. And so God is forever happy. When you think of God, do you think of him as being happy? Our God is happy because of his attributes. God is full of glory and holiness. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You know what makes me miserable in life? Sin. My sin, other people's sin, the sin in which the world is trapped, the sin that's in the system, like the software system of my body, sin makes me miserable. So imagine what life must be like if you don't have any of that. If, if, if your impulses are never sinful, right? If you have no fear of death, if your life is not part of one long downgrade, but you are ever full of strength, you are ever full of joy, you never want anything bad, how happy would you be? Most people think they would be happy if they got the bad thing they wanted. For the Christian, they would be happy if they stopped wanting the bad thing, right? And so how happy would you be if all of your impulses were only ever pure and good? God is that way. He only desires what is good. So his glory and holiness attribute to his happiness. And then you have this, his omnipotence. Not only uh, does God only ever want what is good, God can have anything he wants. Just put those things together in your mind. For I know that the Lord God is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, that is, whatever makes him happy, he does it. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Uh, Psalm 115.3 says the same thing. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Many of us think we would be happy if we could get and do whatever we wanted. But you would only be happy if you wanted and did the right things. That's why suicide is on the rise in really affluent societies. It's not on the rise in societies poverty-stricken. People generally don't kill themselves um, in societies where you think they might. People generally kill themselves in societies that are flourishing. At least one possible explainer of that could be that we get to the top and we don't actually, we're not pleased with what we have because we're not full of glory and holiness. But the Lord can do whatever he wants, and what he wants to do is good. And because of his attributes, he's holy. Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is happy because he's omnipotent. God is happy because of his wisdom. Of the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
just in case you're wondering, Romans 11 is the summation of a section in Romans all about something that most people didn't understand. That is God's ways with Israel. Let me give you a little tidbit of how Romans works. In Romans 8, uh, Paul basically says, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not height nor depth, nothing in all of creation. That's a wonderful, like, put it on a coffee mug verse, right? The problem is, Paul doesn't stop at the end of Romans 8. He immediately goes to Romans 9, which is about Israel. Now, why does that happen? That happens because if nothing can separate you from the love of God, then what about Israel? Because they seemed to have God's love, and now they seem to be separated from it. Does that make sense? And so Paul goes in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about God's dealings with Israel and who Israel is and the future and all this kind of stuff. And after all, working through all, and election is in there and all these mysteries we don't understand, all the stuff that kind of drives us batty, Paul kind of works through, and the end of it is this. Paul is satisfied at the end of everything he says with the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. God is happy not only because he wants the best thing, not only because he can accomplish anything he wants, God's also happy because he does it in the wisest and best way possible. We have no idea what it's like to understand the happiness of God. Our God is happy because of his works. He's happy because of who he is in the Trinity. He's happy because of his attributes. Our God is happy because of his works, his work of creation. Psalm 104 says this, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from a book called Orthodoxy by a man named G.K. Chesterton. It's kind of heady, but G.K. Chesterton was kind of like C.S. Lewis's C.S. Lewis, for what that's worth. And he's talking about how when you look around at nature, things seem so repetitive and so ordinary. And a lot of people seem to think that ordinariness and repetitiveness is a sign that there's no God behind the universe. Flowers bloom the same as they did yesterday. Things just go on. I guess they assume that if God were behind the universe, things would sort of look different. Uh, but G.K. Chesterton argues that change doesn't happen because of life. Change happens because of death. So he says, you stand up because you're tired of sitting. You sit down because you're tired of standing. You walk because you're tired of sitting. You get on the bus because you're tired of walking. You get off the bus because you're tired of sitting on the bus. A lot of change happens not because we're full of life, but because we're dying. He says, compare that with children. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say what? Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. God delights in creation. 
C.S. Lewis, because I'm quoting Chesterton, you might as well throw some Lewis in there. God delights in his creation. There's no use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. I might disagree with that, but moving on. Yeah, we may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given us, even in heaven, and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. God is happy because he delights in his creation. He likes that he made us the way he made us. I think the Lord, in some ways, again, is happy because of the cross. I don't think that Jesus was happy as he died, but I think Jesus died for happiness. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy... And nobody say, please, to me that joy uh, is there regardless of who's... Who wants a joy that doesn't have happiness? Can I, can I get an amen? Right? Joy and happiness are a little bit different, yes, but they overlap a whole lot. And the only people I know who argue most thoroughly that joy doesn't have any happiness in it are people that aren't happy ever at all. Joy and happiness overlap a lot. And Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus isn't up in heaven going, I'm joyful, but dadgummit, I'm not enjoying it. No. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or here, yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. The Messiah shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. The cross, not the suffering of it, but the plan in it and the outcome of it, make God happy. Next, our God is happy because of us. Not because of me, Drew. If you can't ever believe that God delights in you, you you've got very little hope in living out the Christian life the way it's intended. God is happy in us. He says so. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. What I read in there is, to obey pleases God. When you pray to the Lord and when you obey his word, it's not just that he goes, well, that's the least you could have done. No, when you pray to the Lord and when you obey his word, he's like, that's awesome. That's great. That pleases me. Jeremiah thirty-two forty-one. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With how much of himself? With all my heart and all my soul. 
What's he going to do with all his heart and all his soul? Rejoice in doing them good. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Lord delights in himself. The Lord delights in his attributes. The Lord delights in his work of creation and the cross. And the Lord delights in us. I think of Ephesians 2 where it says that the Lord intends in the new heavens and the new earth to display his overwhelming kindness to us uh, throughout the history of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, let's apply this, shall we? What does this mean? Well, number one, we need to know of God's happiness in order to live in the good of the gospel. Fear can only take us so far. Now, that doesn't mean that fear doesn't have a place in the Christian life, right? Anytime the people of God are waffling, like whether it's in the prophets or whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's in um, Hebrews and in the, in the, in the letters, whenever God's people are like sticking a toe into sin, the apostles and the prophets don't hesitate at all to use threats to get God's people back. Fear is a good thing in the Christian life. You should be afraid of uh, walking away from the Lord. You should be afraid of sin. You should be afraid of your heart hardening. You should be afraid of your love growing cold. The problem is, for some of us, fear is the only motivator that we know. And it's probably the only motivator that we know because we think that the mad God that we think we read about in those warnings is the real one, and this happy one is just the mask. But you need to know of God's happiness so that you can live in the good of the gospel. What do I mean by live in the good of the gospel? It means that you live in the joy that Jesus purchased for you. You live in the faith and in the certainty that God is at work in you and will carry you home. So many of us live in the fear of the Lord only and not in the good of the gospel. Secondly, we need to apply this this way. Every single thing that you do, you do for the purpose of happiness. You're like, Drew, I'm on a diet. Yeah, why are you dieting? Because you know if you eat carrots, you live longer, right? Than if you eat fried chicken. Or, or your happiness is tied up in a certain body image. And so even though only eating carrots and food that tastes like rocks and trees uh, isn't appealing to you, the reason you do it is because long life or a body image is, is what makes you happy. Even people who uh, kill themselves do it in the pursuit of happiness, if for no other reason than just to end the pain. Maybe it's better there. Everything you do, you do for the purpose of happiness. So why not come to the Bible then and learn from the only one who in himself truly is happy? How about that? How about go to the Bible, because if everything you do is for happiness, then maybe learning from the only one who is truly in himself happy might set you on the right path. And what he says is, happiness does come with sacrifice. It's just what you sacrifice and what you sacrifice it for. Jesus says, anyone who picks up his cross and denies himself for my sake and the gospel will gain his life. 
the Proverbs talk about just day in and day out faithfulness as a way to uh, toward happiness at the end of your life, not having regret, not because you missed out on a bunch of stuff, but because in holiness you actually accomplished a bunch of stuff. If God is truly happy, then come to his word and learn from him what it means to be happy. And then finally, fight your sin with God's happiness. What do I mean by that? At least for me, a lot of my sin stems probably to some degree, if I analyze it back far enough, it stems to some degree from the fact that I don't think that God is happy and happy in me. But if I believe that he genuinely delights in me, then I'll believe him when he tells me not to do certain things and when he tells me to do other things. If he delights in me, then maybe it's, and, and if he truly is the happy one, then maybe he's given me clues to happiness when he tells me things like don't lust and don't cheat and don't lie and don't commit idolatry and don't covet and don't covet. That's not gonna make you happy, right? Happiness is being united to me through the gospel. So do you live in the good of the gospel? When you think of God, do you think, A, he's really happy, and B, he rejoices in me? Or do you think he's perpetually unhappy and never rejoices in you? You will not live the Christian life well that way. Now, you may have some sin to deal with. Maybe there is some sin that is separating you from fellowship with God, but that's, that's you, isn't it? That's not him. That's you. That's your sin. That's your choice. Repent of that, and you will find God like that father running to meet the son when he came home. He's happy. He's got plenty of strength and energy. When you read the word, even those parts you really don't agree with and kind of knock you on the head and knock you back, read them as if God really is happy and wants you to be happy in him. Because we do need to be a church that lives in the good of the gospel. Because, to close with another John Piper quote, you can't commend what you don't cherish. If you don't cherish God and the gospel, you can't, with any real effectiveness, commend it. And I feel in our history, even in my history of preaching, because I've believed in a God who's sort of mad, I've preached that way. Uh, but the Lord is... Uh, takes delight in his people. He takes delight in you. He's working for our happiness in him. And so learn by living in the good of the gospel to cherish the Lord uh, so that you can commend his gospel. Let's pray.